0: Three, two, one. Hello, Belinda Bags. Thank you for being on the Ponytail Show. It's a real pleasure for me to have you on the show because you've been a real, like, role model for me um, since I was young um, as a female single fin longboarder who is also, you know, a very passionate activist, which is, you know, something I really really inspired me as a, as a, an adult and um, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and I'd really like to share with our audience your life, your worldview. Um, so I'm going to start off by asking you, um, what are, what are the big changes you've seen in your lifetime?
1: Hey, Lauren, great to be chatting with you. Um, Big changes I've seen in my lifetime. I'd have to say the first one would be climate change issues. Um, For the first time, I feel like the world in the last two or three years has really experienced firsthand hand catastrophes that have been created by a changing climate. Um, You know, massive fires that have swept across our whole globe. I know the Amazon was burning Mm. a couple of months later. The whole east and south coast of Australia was on fire. Um, You know, we've seen mass weather events that are occurring more frequently. You know, cyclones wiping out areas that are just truly devastating. Um, And I would like to point out that I know these occurrences have happened throughout history, but very few as harsh and as as frequent as what we're experiencing now. Mm. Um, So I think that would definitely be the first one. Mm. Uh, General awareness of issues too, I think, has changed during my lifetime. I feel like when I was a kid and it may have potentially been because I was just a child, (laughs) um, but a lot of things weren't spoken about and I wasn't brought up, nor were any of my friends to, you know, raise our voice as females or to stand up for the indigenous communities or to go against our government on, you know, environmental issues and the way that they govern us. So I feel like that all those things have definitely changed. There's, a stronger voice um, and more challenges to a lot of decisions that are made for us as people. And I think just yesterday saw a massive social change in equality and rights across the globe. And I'm still trying to come to terms with Mm -hmm. how the future may look, but I think it's definitely going to be a more just and a more fair place And, you know, connecting with that, probably a cleaner, brighter, more loving world.
0: Mm. Um, Let's cycle back. Um, Yeah, because, yeah, a lot has happened um, in the world in the last week um, with the, you know, brutal police murder of George Floyd and and the effect that that has had not only um, on the U.S. in the U.S., but kind of all around the world. Um, what's what's the like? What's the feeling in Australia? I
1: think it's almost a moment of empowerment for a lot of Indigenous communities and people of color, and also an opportunity for everybody else to stand up and support those movements and those people and demand equality and justice within our system. Um I'll, a few of my friends have had a really rough time the last week just trying to kind of conceptualize what's happening um and kind of letting themselves feel all these prejudices that have kind of come to light in the last, you know, week or so. And how, and then also, I think being overwhelmed by the support that the world's giving.
0: Mm. Now, I I want to name that. You know, both of you are white, and I am half white, and we we have experienced the privileges in our world of being white, and in so many different layers. Um, but I want to name that systemic. Racism is so deep in the Australian culture. Um, having grown up in Australia myself, um, like, as yeah, like, it's, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of um, denial and white fragility around this really touchy subject amongst white people. And I think it's really important that you and I are having this conversation and just bringing this up because in Australia, it's, it's something that's been swept under the rug for so long. And I feel like finally, just because something that's happened on the other side of the world, you know, people are just finally saying, yes, like I, this hurts. I'm angry. This traumatizes me. And for some people, like it's so traumatic that that they need space to just fig- just to feel what's going on in the, you know. In themselves, um, you did very radically and rapidly um, bring together a, a bunch of people in your community yesterday um, to to bring this issue to the surface. Um, Can you talk about what happened yesterday?
1: Yeah, so um, I think as well, before I go into yesterday, I just wanted to maybe mention that I feel like my personal journey with social justice and rights is sort of just begun. So in no means am I an expert on this topic at all. Um, Which is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like for me, it's a part of moving forward and growing who I am as a person. And, yeah. you know, I've always aimed to just do what's right for mm. our planet and our next generation. And this is, you know, i been a realization that, you know, s- social equality is number one on that agenda. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: like you were saying, as a, a white person that grew up privileged in a country that is extremely racist in a lot of ways, um, especially systemically. Um, it wasn't really an issue that I thought too much about before. Mm. Um, and now it's top of my agenda. So, mm. yeah, my journey's just beginning. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Which is important. And I'm like thankful a, for that.
0: Yeah, and a lot of, you know, what what's wonderful about this is it's, it's opened the eyes of a lot of people who, who might not have been aware of the, the subtle, unspoken, um, forms of racism that's just everywhere. And also the systematic, um, the system that is basically oppressing, um, in Australia's case, the original peoples of the land. And also, you know, in yeah. the US and in many, in much of Western, um, civilization, it's the it's the economic oppression of of people who are brought to a land to work to be the economy of a place um where you know where shelter, money, so many things are promised to them in the modern society, but are not but it's it's a false promise. Um so yeah, like that's why I was just really like interested in what you were able to to get together in the surfing community in Australia yesterday because honestly the surfing community is a real white community um and I was so impressed by how many people you were able to 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 bring together at such late notice
1: Yeah so um we saw one of my good friends Sam and I saw that You know, these um, actions, Paddle Out Actions, Surf in Solidarity events were happening across the globe. They're led by an amazing group based out of Africa, I believe. Um, They're on Instagram as Black Girls Surf. And uh, they were really aiming at bringing people together to honour the lives of people, you know, Indigenous people lost honour the lives that were lost of Indigenous people in police custody and also just to bring that awareness to the surf community. And so we instantly decided when we saw it that we needed one here on the surf coast because although I wouldn't consider many of our community here to be specifically racist, um, but I think it was really important for us to acknowledge that we are a huge minority and that we have grown up with such privilege as white surfers along this coastline. And so the whole aim was to really just bring people together and start a conversation and share stories and bring as much awareness to the issue that we possibly could. And also to let our friends know here on Wadawurrung Country that we're here to support them. We're here to include them. That if they want to learn to surf, we want to teach them. And, and you, if, you're like, you know,
0: we. You're using your platform to voice, hopefully, to voice what they want to say as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. So we had invited quite a few um, members of the Waterong people down for our event. Unfortunately, there'd been a tragic suicide um, a couple of days beforehand with one of their really close um, members of community and they were unable to make it on the day, but we did have a few Indigenous surfers there. Um, And I think part of it as well is a lot of us surfers in the area have um, roles within the community where we can create change whether that be socially or whether that be through our jobs um, through legislation, there was lots of different people that were down there. We had actually had the the mayor down, um, which was amazing to see and just to sort of start talking about as well how we can care for country better through um, employing or asking for advice and assistance and asking the local wrong people to lead us in a lot of decisions because they'd been managing this land for, you know, thousands of years before we
0: mm. white people came and destroyed it. Yeah. I think, um, um I think right was... now, like listening is just so important. Finally, it's like extremely, finally yeah. someone's listening. And I hope that, that yeah. this isn't just like a, a wave, you know, like an, Social media, like wave, and I hope this sticks. And the the way that it's going to stick is if we keep pushing this agenda and keep keep yeah, this alive. Yeah, I completely alive. agree. Mm. Um, yeah.
1: Um, so, so on the day we we basically had like forty eight hours to pull together as many people as we could. Um, we didn't promote it in any way besides sharing on social media, and we had about. 200 or 250 people wow. show up at sunrise 7:30 a.m pouring rain freezing cold wow um or on the beach standing in solidarity so it ended up being very successful
0: and very powerful and very moving wow that's yeah the pictures like uh, I saw some of your pictures on Instagram um yesterday and um I was just yeah, I was just so impressed by the turnout and just the this feeling of quietness that was that I got yeah. from the pictures and um I wasn't there but um you were able you were have you had some talks before you went out paddled out into the water is that right
1: Yeah, we did. We had um a few speeches from uh Jesse who um, is an indigenous surfer who's actually not from Wadwurrung country but she lives here now and that was really, really powerful too. It kind of made re- me realise that I understand that I will never understand mm. what these people and cultures have experienced in the last 200 years. Yeah um, and but that maybe- also made me realise that Now, more than ever, we need to use our white privilege for good.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like, for, just let me name some of those things that, that maybe white people don't quite understand what it would feel like. Um, just to, just to name some things is, um, you know, being judged for, for how you look, being assumed that you're, you know like having to dress in a certain way to get public a certain public opinion about yourself and like subtle things you know like things that slight comment like comments and accepting you know awful racist comments just on a day-to-day basis and you know not being told that you are entitled to the same privileges as your white or or Asian or um, you know brown brothers and sisters but not but but not seeing the same outcome for yourself and for your community and that's so hurtful and I think like yeah it's something that will white people will never understand, but at least, yeah, it's coming, it's coming up now. Um, So I just, I'm- It's definitely coming. (laughs) Yeah, I just, yeah, I'm just really um, grateful that you were, you're acting and um, that the community is there in support. Um, So yeah, power to you. Um, (sighs) It brings me to like, I wanna ask you like, what is it about longboarding in particular that feels different and feel what on your path as a longboarder made you an activist? Um, So
1: initially longboarding felt different because it was just more fun. Everybody was everybody that I surrounded myself with when I was riding a longboard was laughing and giggling and sharing stories and really, um, inclusive, you know, like come join us, like be part of our friends group, come surfing with us. Um, and caring as well, maybe because there was less of us. So when you saw another longboarder out in the water, I was like, (laughs) Hey, (laughs) um, I think the real, um, thing that grabbed me with it was that I felt feminine when I was riding a longboard and I felt like I all of a sudden fitted like I'm quite clumsy on land I fall over a lot (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not super athletic but I love the ocean and when I was on my longboard all of a sudden it felt I felt confident and not a type of power that, you know, you kind of gain from that like masculinity type um essence, but more being able to use my feminine um power and for good, like, and just really, it's hard to explain, but like just really, really strong and confident in mm-hmm. who I was and that I was completely okay with the fact that, You know, maybe people wanted to laugh at me or whatever. It didn't matter, you Mm. know. So I think I just gained so much, um, belonging and confidence out of, out of being on a longboard and, and a comfortability in being in my own skin as Mm. well. Um,
0: which is like, that's kind of what, that's kind of, I just want to touch on that quickly. Um, that's kind of what kind of drew me to you as a longboarder when I was young, because, um, I felt like I couldn't understand this when I was younger and I'm still trying to get my head around it, but I feel like I grew up in a culture where mas- this masculine energy of competing, of striving to be the top of something, of being a woman and being told you should have a career, you should, um, you know, you should compete with your fellow sisters to like, you know, reach that top you know, and inside it just felt really like wrong. Um, and so wrong. Yeah. And I felt like seeing you on a long board, I didn't understand it at the time that, yeah, it was this real feminine energy and I can put into words now it's, um, it's slowing things down and, responding to a wave rather than trying to manipulate a situation to make, to, to gain power. And it's like, that to me are like qualities of like cooperation, intuitiveness, um, openness, and they're all feminine energies. And I feel like, yeah, for some reason they were not really encouraged, um, as a young person growing up in Australia, for whatever reason, for wh- whatever cultural bubble I existed in, that just was lacking. So seeing you um, on a longboard just really—I didn't understand that, but it embodied something. And I feel like um, you don't really understand something as conceptually until you can embody it in your body and you can feel that.
1: Um, yeah, and I think I think that's a huge part of. What longboarding was for me is whether it's that connection to the earth, connection to the water's movements, um, and really being able to feel that like ignite through your body whilst you were surfing, and it makes you feel alive. And as you said, there was no fighting against the waves' power for manoeuvres. It was all about finesse and really small placements that would just simply allow you. To connect deeper and feel these sensations
0: mm. and um so like that moves on to you becoming an activist. When did you feel what at what point did that happen?
1: uh well, I think surfing and my love of you know riding waves was my first point of wanting to protect the planet keep our oceans clean keep our lineups pristine it wasn't until I had my son Rayson who's now eight years old that I realized that we are merely caretakers for this earth that we all reside on and that we're passing on this legacy to our next generation and Watching all the environmental threats, all the environmental destruction that was going down, I just couldn't allow myself to let that be my son's future.
0: Mm.
1: And so I try and put every effort and energy that I can into making sure that he's protected with a safe and healthy planet to live on.
0: Mm. It must be scary at times, you know, the news makes things so scary, but just the reality of just global warming and how how much it's encroached, um, how much it's impacted our day-to-day life nowadays. I'm not sure, like I haven't lived in Australia for 10 years, but I can say this, that in Thailand in the last year and a half, Air quality has dropped like crazy. Pollution has been such a big problem um, since about March last year. Um, people started to have to wear masks every single day to go outside um, because the air quality was so bad. I wouldn't be able to go outside my my house unless I had a mask. Otherwise, I'd get a headache in two hours of being exposed to such... Wow. Yeah. Awful pollution. Um, and yeah, apparently this pollution, um, came from, you know, it was always a big issue in China, uh, during, since the industrial revolution, um, when China started in modern times, China started becoming the factory of the world. And air quality in China became really bad, um, and it became so bad that the government decided to move most factories that were inland that were blowing you know where bad quality air was moving across um, the country to the ocean and they they moved the fact many factories to the coastline so that people would not be experiencing um, this bad air quality. Now, when you move all the factories. the coastline, all the neighbouring countries start to breathe that toxic air and there are no invisible borders that you can put up when it comes to air quality. But this is not something that China needs to take complete responsibility for because the Western world has just taken advantage of cheap labour and decided that they want to, you know, jeopardise many moral issues by moving all their um, production to China. Um, and, yeah, therefore, air quality got really bad, just very drastically um, in Southeast Asia, in Korea, um, and which was, yeah, a real drastic um, change in our lives um what like in your lifetime plastic in the ocean has become really apparent tell me about yes <laughs> tell like i've seen it you know in in thailand but i honestly haven't really been back enough in australia to to see a big drastic change can you describe some of that
1: I would say the most drastic changes you see are in really out of the reach destinations. Um, I think we've always had plastic on the beaches, in the cities, you know, people leave it, it washes in from the storm water. Um, There's always some form of caring community that walks along the sand and picks it up. And, you know, I don't feel like that's changed too drastically in my lifetime. But what I have seen is when I go to these, you know, really secluded destinations that are far away from any city or population center pieces of, you know, they're not quite microplastics, although I'm sure there's microplastics there, but a lot Mm. of pieces of plastic broken up about this big scattered all along the high tide line. Um, And to pick it all up is, like, honestly near impossible. Like, we try. Every time we go down, we always come home with a big bucket full, but it's just a small little section of this massive beach that we've cleaned up. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's a lot of company, a lot of organisations working on tracing the source of a lot of those. Um, You know, I've heard that it's from boats out at sea, Um, I've also heard other things that it's, you know, washing in from cities or potentially even catching currents from, you know, really far away and washing down. And just because a lot of those places are quite exposed by the swells, especially here in Australia, along the southern coast of Victoria, it just ends up depositing there, but seeing what's on the shore. I could only imagine what's on the the sand at the bottom of the ocean. Mm. It would be absolutely insane, especially when you hear about these, you know, massive garbage patches floating in the middle of the Pacific, which are so, so saddening. But they estimate that that's only a small percentage of the plastic that's still out there in the
0: sea.
1: Um, And I I think we've just seen a constant ramp in production of these single-use plastics. Yeah. They're circulating more and more. And even though, you know, you try your hardest to not take any single-use plastics, obviously there's water bottles, there's cutlery, there's straws, um, coffee mugs that are really simple things to to um, carry around with you so that you can refuse single-use plastics, but, you know, everybody goes to a supermarket and a lot of the food that we buy in there is wrapped in plastic.
0: Mm. I like on at least a little positive note, um, I was watching a documentary um, about ocean plastics and um, the world has gotten to a point where the cost of sending garbage to landfill has become so expensive for governments and local um, um, councils that They've been forced to look at other options. Um, there was one case study about, um, in, in the Philippines where they were testing out zero waste communities in the slums. And in the space of one year, I think it was like they, the council was able to re- reduce the landfill costs by something like 80%. Using the zero wow. waste um, model, which is really positive, and yeah. I think this is like this is happening in the developing world, um, just because the literal costs that these corporations are putting on our communities and on our governments, um, like, are unaffordable um, to deal with the literal waste that comes from all these plastics. And there's a big move um, in government to put the cost back onto the producer on your Coca-Cola, on your, you know, um, Unilever, to name a couple. Have you heard, like, um... Yeah, well, have just, I've heard, I've heard
1: similar stories. Um, there's a group in the UK called Surfers Against Sewage, And they're currently um, working on a campaign. They call it Return to Offender. So they're collecting data about all the plastic waste that they're finding in their beach cleanups. They have like a countrywide network of chapters that consistently host beach cleanups. Um, So they collect all the data of everything collected and they're aiming at all these companies, example Coca-Cola, Pepsi, et cetera, et cetera, um, to try and clean up their act and trying to force the responsibility back onto them, which I think is an amazing initiative, especially if we start demanding that change as consumers.
0: Mm. Well, uh, you know, like the the recycling sign. Um, I don't know if you've heard this mm-hmm. before, but um, it was an invention by like one of the US's most um, successful ad firms back in I want to say the 70s but I might be wrong maybe the 80s no sorry it must have been the 80s Um, and that that recycle sign was I think for a for the contract with Coca-Cola if I'm right but basically that started shifting the responsibility of the from the corporation to the consumer, and that was like the biggest shift in uh, huge plastic problems now, and I think it's really important that people know that this responsibility needs and this cost needs to go back onto corporations if we want to actually like get anything, get anywhere. But then like you look outwards and there's like a way bigger picture here and that's fossil fuels, <laughs> which are the reason why we can have plastics, right? Um, and exactly. That, that's what I was going to say. They're all completely related. Yeah. And and that's something you've worked really hard at um, campaigning against, um, about basically in your um, career. Um I was really inspired by Save the Australian Bite, for example. Can you talk to us about how that all happened and what happened as an outcome?
1: Yeah, so um, for anybody who doesn't know, the Great Australian Bight covers the majority of the southern coastline of Australia. Um, it's in Western Australia and South Australia. There was a... Oil rig proposed to sit out 300 kilometres off the coast. Um, the total length of drilling would have been about five kilometres deep. It was an experimental well in the one of the most treacherous stretches of seas in the entire globe. It was in the path of the Roaring Forties. And there had been a few companies that had applied for licences and looked at developing there. Um, One was BP, they had pulled out. Another one was Chevron, they had pulled out. And then we found ourselves stuck with a Norwegian company called Equinor who were pushing forth with their environmental um, applications to the government, the governing body here in Australia called Nopsema. And um, they released with those environmental plans their spill modeling, which saw oil on beaches from Port Macquarie on the east coast of Australia, wrapping all the way down past Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia to Albany. It also reached Tasmania as well as the most Western points of um, New Zealand
0: oh so this gosh. was their
1: worst case spill modeling like mind you worst case scenario oh, yeah it's still possible the fact that it was in their environmental plan as a possibility was absolutely unconscionable we saw this as a surf community and it pretty much like was just a rallying call for every surfer in this country to not let this project go ahead mm. um there was an alliance created uh great australian bite alliance it involved many environmental organizations and non-for-profits and also a couple of businesses who had previously been working on this issue Um, it really took the best qualities out of each organization and kind of created this like superpower that was helping save this beautiful place we had People that were, you know, legal experts, um, legislation experts, um, marketing experts. So everybody could know about it and storytellers and, you know, all kinds of um, amazing people with great skills were on board. And we started to um, find that because the surf community was so up in arms about this, they wanted to take more action than just signing a petition. Mm. So we created through Surf Rider Australia national day of action which um had not exactly sure how many locations it was i think it was around 50 locations across the whole country where tens and thousands of surfers headed out to the beach and paddled out and we were out in the water united chanting no way equinor fight for the bite wow (laughs) and it made you know it made national news i think There may have even been some coverage internationally Um, on top of that. Equinor being a Norwegian owned company, it's also publicly owned. So it has shareholders and our alliances and friends and many surfers and ocean advocates in Norway turned up at the Equinor AGM um, demanding that this project not go ahead, as well as the Extinction Rebellion chapter there who was standing up for um, climate change and no new fossil fuel extraction. So I think we made a big impact. Um, There was still not a lot of movement after all those things had taken place with, um, you know, Equinor still seemed like they were pretty sure they were going ahead. The Australian government is fossil fuel and money hungry, so they were still going ahead. And, you know, I was actually down in the bike and I remember looking back at the ocean one day, after kind of scavenging up this big cliff and puffing, <laughs> um, scavenging, And looking up. back out, thinking, <laughs> 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 um, looking back out over this this like beautiful, amazing, pristine ocean that you know we'd had dolphins come through and seals, and you know there was a whale migration period which is about to happen. And just thinking like the next time I'm gonna be down here, I'm gonna be chaining myself to ships or mm. like a dock wharf and trying to get this thing stopped. Mm. And out of nowhere, about a week later, Equinor um pulled out of their pulled out their plans, pulled out their cancelled their license, and they're no longer drilling in the Great Australian
0: bite. <sighs> Such a Big huge win. victory. Yeah.
1: Like- huge win. Um amazing win and it took like a couple of days for it actually to to sort of sink in that this was really a testament to people power mm. and that if enough of us unite and band together and be strategic in our actions that we can make a difference in you know stopping these mass corporations and our governments from environmental injustices
0: mm. And like, I guess like one, that's like a really high vibe, you know, um, win that people really need to know about because it does feel very hopeless a lot of the time. Um, but like, how do you make sure that that stays that, you know, the the Australian bite stays un, you know, untouched and
1: protected?
0: Um, Yeah,
1: so again, I guess it comes back to strategy. Right now, the licence is actually still open. So the Australian government um, made a statement after Equinor pulled out that they were very disappointed that the company had pulled out (laughs) and left the licence open. So right now, the alliance is working on trying to get that region World Heritage listed so it comes also with protections and it can never be drilled. Um, It's going to be a long battle, but I think it definitely ticks all the boxes, the biodiversity boxes of what is required. And so um, it's just pushing forth and um, keeping the pressure on to make sure that that happens and we don't end up fighting another major corporation again. Mm. And I think that's sort of a way forward for a lot of these Mm. environmental issues as well. Um, Right now I'm working with a group down in the Otway Basin, which is on Victoria's southwestern coast. Um, The state government's just opened it up for five new oil and gas leases, and we're working on um, trying to stop the process before it starts, basically, and trying to think about ways where the area um, would tick all those boxes again to be protected, whether it be a marine park or some type of sanctuary.
0: Mm. And like, I need to be devil's advocate because I feel like the argument for for anti, you know, okay, where where we have a very leftist um, point of view, um, but the up uh, the argument for the right, we do. <laughs> yeah, the argument for the right is. Well, you know, you guys don't understand that the economy needs, like, needs to be fueled by fossil fuels so that we can pay for, you know, all of these, um, you know, securities that we have in our society. But I just, let me just read, because our Pr- Prime Minister Scott Morrison, he loves coal. He even brought it to Parliament one day and... I just want to read a little passage, um, from, from the Guardian. Um, Australia has a bigger share of the traded coal market than Saudi Arabia has in the world oil market. Everyone knows that if the Saudis were to double their oil production, the world price of oil would drop because there's way more supply than there is demand. Um, but virtually every government in Australia pretends that if we succeed in doubling our coal production by opening up the Adani and other, um, Galilee mines, it would have no impact on the world price of coal. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and like, I, in my point of view, I think, okay, we do need the, I'm, I'd like to call myself a centrist because I do really believe that governments, for, for a democracy to work, we need two equally, two different sides to work together, to to have conversation and put forward the best, smartest answer for the future of our population. And what's happening right now is that the Western world has become so polarised that people feel the need to, to pick a side and it's a war. And that's, that's not how we're going to move forward. Um, in my opinion, anyway, um, like if you, <laughs> that's the scary thing in my opinion is, okay, this government's said that they they're not going to go ahead with, um, with, um, in the, in the, Great Australian buy. But then what if a new government's re-elected and the whole story starts again? I just feel like um, it's a real message that we as the people need to keep in touch with the dialogue, keep moving the dialogue forward and keep putting pressure on our government Because once we become complacent and stop caring, that's when chaos happens. Um, And that's why, that's why like. I completely agree. Yeah. And so that brings me like, I'm very curious about um, your work with Patagonia, actually. Um, Can you tell us about like, how long you've been working with Patagonia and why as an activist you chose to work with a company like Patagonia?
1: Um, so I've been with the company for about 14 years now, so well over a decade. Um, initially, I just saw that our morals aligned and that I really wanted to work on a company that would work with a company that was doing things for good. They were using their money for good, you know, by donating to a various array of environmental organizations across the globe. Um, and that they also really, um, would help put me in situations where I could potentially help further. So whether it be, you know, connecting me with environmental groups or, you know, sort of, Their own campaigns that they had going, but it was things that I could work on and and it kind of gave me purpose in life, I guess. Um, Since then, you know, 14 years later, Patagonia has changed their, um, you know, reason for being to, you know, we're in business to save our home planet. And I think in a lot of ways it really shows with every decision that they make in there, whether it be, you know, the product, the raw materials that they're using in their products, um, their fair trade, uh, the way they implement fair trade into all their designs, the fair trade sewing, um, innovating new fabrics with their wetsuit design and things like that, and also their constant and relentless support for environmental organizations as well as leading their own campaigns still. I have a whole heap of freedom in the job that I have with them. I work on environmental campaigns. I do support a lot of their environmental campaigns, um, which I'm very happy to do because they're all very well researched and super worthy causes. But at the same time, they support me to go off on my own agenda and work on anything that I um, am passionate about and see... um, really worthy of my time and, and projects that are going to make a difference to the health of our planet.
0: Mm. I think like it's, it's important to acknowledge this kind of uh, corporation, which is quite unique um, because um, the initial business model was to create a business to protect um, an area of Patagonia um, which was like, you know, the reason for them coming into existence. And I think to create a business that is so mindful, that is mindful of the community that they are um, not only servicing but producing in is like a really important um, value that I believe all businesses need to respect and honour. Um, but unfortunately, that is not the case in our world today Um, but how since the coronavirus like we've had a bit of time to kind of like stop and freak out a bit and then figure out what kind of world we want to live in in the future which is I saw this in the fashion industry I saw this in 2008 with the global financial crisis you know there was a big push for um, in, in fashion, there was a big push for artisan made, small craft industry. Um, but at the same time, fast fashion just kept growing, kept, kept becoming this crazy, huge monster. Um, do you think, I hate to use this word, the new normal, cause I don't believe that. I don't like the, the idea of it, but do you think that the new world that we will have to adjust to, um, do you think people will be more conscious and mindful of how they are spending their money and what they're putting their money to?
1: I would hope that this um, current epidemic that swept our globe has definitely created a more a sense of you know consciousness for the majority of us I know in my community it definitely has um, we've looked at you know different ways to source our food um become more self-dependent not necessarily just here within our whole household but like as a community you know like what can we do to make sure that if you know shit hits the fan that we're going to be okay, you know, <laughs> um, and that's cutting out these giant corporization corporate corporations and like a globalization kind of effect that has sort of swept our globe. Like we're so, you know, I mean, funny story when COVID first, um, COVID lockdown started happening. We had no toilet paper in Australia, <laughs> like absolutely none because all our toilet paper got shipped from China oh, <laughs> um, and it was ridiculous. People were, like, fighting each other in the supermarkets over rolls of toilet paper, hoarding toilet paper. It was absolutely insane. But I think it was just a really good, like, wake-up call to be like, wow, like, we don't even produce
0: our own toilet paper.
1: What the hell is wrong with us? You yeah. Know?
0: And when it, um, when it came to, like, PPEs with the hospitals, Australia didn't have enough as well. Yeah. Same situation. So. Same situation, yeah,
1: and so I think it sort of definitely brought upon a um, more of a sense of you know living locally, living more sustainably. But I also saw here, particularly where I live, which it is a beautiful coastal area, um, and it's quite quite busy with tourists a lot of the time. I live on the Great Ocean Road. Um, it saw a huge influx of surfers and of walkers along our tracks and of beach users, which in a lockdown, when we're told to stay home, we really didn't think that was going to be the the case. Um, But there's honestly like two to three times more people out in the water now as lockdowns are lifting than there was before COVID. Mm. Um, I think part of that was due to... um, people appreciating their time in the ocean and not really realizing that they loved it and cared about it as much as they did before it was taken away, you know, Mm. um, when we were told to like not go to the beach or, you know, we were always allowed to surf here in Australia. Um, but, you know I think it was sort of like that threat that constant like oh my god like what if they decide we can't go surfing tomorrow quick I have to go surfing now you know like I don't want to take it away Mm -hmm. and I think I heard similar stories about that with the trails up in the mountains um, and just all general outdoor activities is that they're all way busier now because people realized that they couldn't live without these things and appreciated them more and so I would hope that that connection to nature and realization of how important it is for us not just physically but also mentally will bring upon a different way of looking at the world and more of a sense of protection across the planet. Mm. Um I also think we're at a time right now where we need to rebuild our economy mm. and you know as a climate activist there was so much um talk before about well you know you're demanding that we stop coal-fired power plants um and just switch everything to renewables like that's not going to happen or like you demand that you know we we cease to exist in our you know with our buying and selling in our commute. Consumerism and all these things that cre- that ultimately create pollution because everything that we buy or consume or eat has some type of carbon footprint um, you know and all of a sudden we saw all these systems shut down we saw clear, Air in cities that hadn't experienced clean air for decades and we saw nature returning to areas that had been heavily polluted in the past and we saw people only buying essentials and not items that we didn't necessarily need and it did have a major effect on our economy but it was possible mm. and you know like you said before I am very left thinking but like if you look at the current climate predictions with the, with the trajectory that we are on by 2080, we may not have a civilized, a functioning civilization to live in. And like my son is going to be alive then, and he's hopefully going to have children of his own. And so I think as we rebuild after COVID, we should use this, As an opportunity to think about what sort of to to implement those changes for the type of future that we want Mm -hmm. for our kids, for our planet, for all living things. Yeah. Um, you know, in in Australia, they're talking about a gas-led recovery, um, and using gas as a transition fuel, but the infrastructure required. To extract all the gas and get those systems in place is going to cost the country billions of dollars. And, you know, some of that is going to come from taxpayers. Why not put those billions of dollars into a renewable infrastructure that's going to solve our problems and, you know, create jobs? And people may need to be retrained and reskilled. And it is going to be a big transition, but it's possible.
0: But also, it's inevitable with tech, with like, um the way that technology is evolving people are going to see massive job loss anyway and they need to be prepared for it so it's not really like complaining about you know something just to just for, for now it's like this whole world what i've learned from this whole situation is the world changes so fast and we all need to keep our eyes wide open on the horizon, because all of us are responsible for how, how we deal with this. Um, and yeah, and you know, we need to take responsibility for our kids. We need to take responsibility for their learning. We can't just let, let school, we can't just, you know, leave responsibility to just our schools to educate our children. It's up to us as well um, which is like such a big part of everything. Um, yeah, it's just, I just feel like guys stop scrolling on Instagram, looking at food pictures or pictures of people's butts or whatever, like, come on, take responsibility, (laughs) like get your thumb out of your ass and yeah. Yeah. I
1: completely agree. I think one thing that you know, always prompted me is when someone turns around and says like, oh, I'm just one person, what difference am I going to make? Well, we're all just one person and this planet, you know, like the economies function to serve us, the governments are in place to serve us and so if enough of us
0: create change, demand change, then things are going to change. Yeah, call up governments for doing things that are shady, call up corporations, businesses, businesses you know, and like the thing that's funny about our culture is that like the minute you start having a dialogue with someone, um, it, like, they think it's an attack on their personal like existence, which is like a really fragile way of being. But like, we've gotten to this point where like, we can't even start a conversation anymore. So yeah, we've got a long way to go, but, um, yeah, um, yeah, we do.
1: I think that's definitely like relating back to what you said earlier about how there's that huge split in, you know, people that really look at economy and people really look at a clean future, the left and the right, and there can't be that split. Yeah. Like, we need to just put nature first and do what's best for our planet. Yeah. And in that process, find ways that it will create a flourishing economy.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note, that was a beautiful way to end this um, podcast thank you so much for you know spending the time with me and sharing your your worldview um, which is really valuable I really appreciate it oh thanks thanks
1: for having the time to talk to me it's been great to um, connect one-on-one with you
0: yeah um, for those out there who might want to check check out um, your activism your surfing um, how do they do that
1: uh, best way is probably just to pop on my Instagram account. It's just at Belinda Bags, BelindaBags, B-E-L-I-N-D-A-B-A-G-G-S. I cool. also answer most of
0: my messages. <laughs> nice one. Well, on that note, bye, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, Lauren. Bye. bye. bye.